turning your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Oh, jeez. I think it's starting. You know, just remember you had to write an intro. Wait, what? <laughs> Here we go. Brothers, sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School, starring Penn Gillette. My name is Michael Gnu. Matt, Penn, Freddy, Richard. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Broadcasting from Show Creator Studios South here in Las Vegas. And on today's show, we've got First Amendment attorney and author of The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder, The First Amendment and Censor's Dilemma, our friend Bob Cornbramier is here in the studio with us. Here he is preaching love, Mr. Pendulette. Now that title of that book... Is the longest thing I've... No, what it does is it makes you not a fuck-up. You just read the title, it fit in really well. <laughs> just happened to be the right length, didn't it? Yeah. Really exactly the right length. Oh, our good friend Bob. And you, you, you came into town to see me, and everything's so busy and so crazy, this is the time we'll have to visit. But it's well, good, because what I wanted to talk to you about was your book anyway. Well, it's great, because you know when people are always saying, like, well, for the record, and I've always wondered what that meant, really. What record? Well, now we have one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly uh the book which i read uh how, how long has it been out because i read it well, like a year before it came out yeah it came out in november mm-hmm. uh, i actually finished it a year before that uh but didn't want to rush out with it because <laughs> no one was going out to buy books yeah and so uh um it finally came out last november and um here we are mm-hmm. and uh what uh what the book is is a history of censorship, which well, is a sorta. really cool, I, I thought it was a great angle because we spend so much time talking about the importance of free speech right. and what people are saying. It was really interesting to see the other the other point of view. And really, if you want to talk about uh, psychologically fucked up people, <laughs> the people that are fighting for free speech can't touch the people on the other side. I mean, <laughs> oh, not in terms of their zeal and and their single-mindedness, the certainty that they're right. And, and also the, uh, the just the creepiness. I mean, <laughs> Comstock, who... Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. just, just talk a little bit about Comstock. Well, Anthony Comstock was the man who essentially invented the role of professional censor. You know how today people in Silicon Valley are saying, you need to go out and invent your own job. Well, mm-hmm. he did it. Uh, he was just uh, <laughs> uh, a nutcase who came out of... Uh, the Civil War, uh, moved to New York and became a dry goods clerk. But his passion was to prevent sin in all of its forms. And he saw sin everywhere. (laughs) And so he became a vigilante. He was like the Batman of censorship. 
got his start that way and then uh, got the attention of the good gentleman who uh, ran and funded the uh, YMCA in New York, and they essentially bankrolled it. That launched a 40-year career of being a professional censor. Did he stop his dry good business entirely? <laughs> well, not in terms of his accounting, uh, because he kept meticulous records of the number of books he'd burned and uh, prosecutions. He even boasted of having caused 15 suicides. Oh. oh. Yeah. What a cheery fella. <laughs> <laughs> and he was incredibly successful. He was, well, here was the Riddler in all of this. <laughs> exactly. He was incredibly successful. And the real paradox is that he is unknown today. I mean, except among historians and people who, who like. Well, for a good amount of time, when we were, we're the same age. Yeah. We were young. The word Comstock was still used it, a little bit in free speech stuff, but it's yes. completely gone now. Yeah. Well, you know, you'll hear it. Sometimes you'll know what the word refers to, but not really have a context for it. Mm -hmm. But he, um, once he got going, uh, he was bankrolled for creating its own, his own organization in New York called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And the, the, uh, I'm having shirts made. <laughs> oh, and, and you'll have to have their logo, which was, it just pretty much said it all. It was a seal that showed on one half a uh, cop leading a miscreant off to jail. And on the other half, it showed an image of a Victorian gentleman wearing a top hat, dumping armloads of books into a bonfire. Wow. Yes. Now, this, this was in the days before censorship was considered necessarily a bad thing. They were very proud of this. They always are. Well, what is the, uh, what is the, the, the history of book burning? <laughs> I mean, is a symbolic, as a symbolic act? Because, I mean, there, it can't be much before the Gutenberg press because it was just too expensive. Oh, sure it was. It, it predated the Gutenberg really? press. Although really? Although you might not have called them books, but you would burn a heretic and his writings together. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that uh, Einstein said is that when they were burning his books uh, in pre-war World War II, uh, that at least they're not burning me along with them. Mm -hmm. uh, but burning books, burning and authors, goes back forever in, in our history of the world. Uh, and uh, then in its more modern in incarnations, people think of Nazis or they think of Christian groups burning record albums or tapes or mm -hmm. uh, books that they don't like. And it was always a, uh, it's so strange because, you know, Fahrenheit 451 yes. and all of that stuff, book burning is instantaneously a negative to me. I mean, it is right there with the word genocide. Yeah. You know, if you're a book burning, whatever book you're burning, you're automatically uh, the enemy to me. Yeah. And yet that, that's not the case for everybody even now, right? Well, that's right. And as I, as I mentioned, it was part of the strategy of Comstock and the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice because they saw that as a way of preventing books from even appearing. Once they convicted someone, once they seized the, uh, the galleys and the books, they would burn the books, melt down the galleys in the thought that that would prevent the book from even having some existence out there. Well, they, they must have been successful with some, right? Well, they were successful in quite a number of them. I mean, completely losing that, like, you know, the Library of Alexandria, just total, <laughs> totally lost. There must be, they must have been successful a lot of times. Uh, See, yeah. nowadays you can't be, right? There's, it's impossible. Right. Once information is out yeah. there, it's pretty much out there. Yeah. 
but uh, they must have been. There must have been things that Comstock destroyed that we have. No one has any record of, right? Yeah. I don't know. I couldn't find the record. <laughs> <laughs> I guess yeah. I guess that's a nonsense, <laughs> nonsense question. And uh, was he considered? Uh, and I, I tried to get the exact vibe from your book on this. It's always so hard with history to know what the vibe was when Comstock was happening. What did the what did the average person think? Well, it was I it think, not. I think when he started, uh, the majority of those, if asked, would agree with him. He was sort of in the mainstream of what was then the progressive movement toward reform. Uh, you know, people were flooding into the cities. Uh, it was a time of growth and change in the United States. And so a number of reform movements took hold. His was one of them, although he branched out across many different areas. Uh, so he would go after... He was good business when he saw it. Well, exactly. He, he went after gambling. He went after, um, you know, lotteries, uh, you know, all kinds of different things. But his special concern, because of his personal quirks, uh, was anything having to do with sex. And so that meant uh, going after what was considered at the time to be obscenity. And that concept of obscenity... Uh, expanded not just beyond racy books or things like that. It also included anything having to do with contraception, right. anything having to do with abortion. Uh, it, it expanded to free thought. And so anyone who was con considered to be a skeptic was one of his natural targets. Mm. And he was, needless to say, Christian, right? Yeah, he was a Protestant fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. And that became his living, just being a censor, right? Yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, shortly after he became sort of the special project of YMCA, they sent him to Washington, D.C. to lobby for a new federal obscenity law, and he was successful in doing that. This was just about a year to the day after he started his vigilante campaign in New York. He had come to Washington in the space of like three months, managed to secure passage of this federal obscenity law, and it was enforced through the, the post office through the mails. And Comstock, as part of the legislation, was named as a special agent of the post office. So he had not just been sort of the sponsor, the person who was driving this bill, but he became a, basically an employee, uh, or rather he had his own organization, but he was empowered under this to enforce the law on his own. Uh, also, as being a special agent of the post office, he had the ability to ride for free on any mode of transportation that carried the mails. So he had free train passage all over the country, and he could pursue his interests uh, that way. That's a perk. Can I get yeah. that? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> How do you get that again? <laughs> yeah. Post office, huh? Uh, what I uh, have never really understood is founding fathers, when, 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 when the U.S. first starts, where is censorship? Like, was... Uh, Thomas Jefferson's library would have certainly have included many things that Comstock would have wanted burned. Right, right. And that's one of the things that I point out in the book. Yeah. Um, so where were we then? I mean, if, if it were the late 18th century, um, what was racy? How could you get it? And would people arrest you? Well, no. And, and there were no obscenity prosecutions. Uh, it wasn't even part of the law until some 40 years after uh, the Constitution was adopted. 
it developed first as sort of a common law thing, and it grew out of old concepts of blasphemy law, uh, and uh, something that our Constitution was supposed to have eliminated. Mm -hmm. uh, but your, your basic question of what were the framers of the Constitution thinking, uh, everyone keeps trying to figure out what the Constitution means by holding a seance to figure out what mm -hmm. was in yeah. the minds of, of the framers. And it's not, I don't think it's really the right question. Uh, you know, I think the, the issue is they set down a blueprint, mm -hmm. um, and as some have often said, uh, a document created by geniuses so the country could be run by idiots. Uh, and, you know, I guess we're still testing that proposition. Um, but uh, when it comes to free speech and the First Amendment, what they said was, and one of the reasons why I focused on censors as opposed to, quote, the value of free speech, mm -hmm. is that we know what the framers intended to prevent. They intended to prevent giving government the power to control what people could read or think or say to each other. And so that, I think that simplifies the proposition rather than asking the question, what speech is good enough to qualify for mm -hmm. First Amendment protection? But uh, I was not, uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court and the originalists and what they wanted to, all yeah. that, all that nutty stuff is, 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 is uh, yeah, I wasn't asking about any of that. I was asking what was available to read that would be censored uh by in the, in the 20th century, what was available to read in like, you know, 1820. And would you be able to, to get, there was no government censorship at all, but was there a lot of self censorship going on? Was there nobody wanting that? Was there, do we have pornography from 1820? Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, it's existed forever. Yeah. Uh, and, when it came to novels, I mean, novels like Tom Jones mm -hmm. and things like that um, would have been among the favorites in the Framers' libraries. Mm -hmm. um, and they are the very kinds of novels that, um, that Anthony Comstock went after. And he would have known that? I, it's hard to know what he knew. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, it's like uh, people say of, of Donald Trump, I doubt that he knows what it means to know something. Yeah, exactly. Well, as someone who knows him, <laughs> I think I think that's uh, that's 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 really true. Um, that's probably like trying to fight it today. If you if someone comes to you and says we need a law uh, stopping this kind of obscenity, and you say no, we don't, don't they accuse you just of being a pedophile? Isn't that the well, next of course. step? Of course, and that was one of the techniques that Comstock used and that anti-speech activists today continue to use. Mm -hmm. If you defend the proposition that the government shouldn't be censoring X, they'll say, oh, well, that's only because you love X. Mm -hmm. And you can fill in the X with whatever is the most horror of the but day. they will often do, if you're X, they'll often say that's because you're Y. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> you that's know, true. The, the, if you if you want to see topless uh, pictures of topless women, you're a pedophile. Right. You know, they, right. they, yeah. they, they they jump into other stuff. But right. there's no unringing the bell now, right? I mean, censorship has become a very complicated thing because no one uh, does anyone even try to stop Pornhub and things like that. Oh yeah, yeah absolutely, uh, and and that's that is ongoing and. As Michael uh, just suggested, people who uh, previously had organizations dedicated to trying to stop porn 
have now rebranded their efforts, renamed their organizations, and they call everything trafficking. And so uh, it's, it's done through both the operation of governmental entities and also through civil litigation that is sort of backed by government agencies uh, in an effort to go after all of those kinds of sites. Mm. And, uh, but I, I was, uh, I, I read one thing and I, it was just one thing that I read um, that said that they wanted to do a study on how uh, having pornography available to people uh, constantly, how that had changed us and society and could not find a control group yeah. <laughs> because, because uh, porn is so uh, completely pervasive now. I mean, we just assume uh, when I was, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old, finding access, uh, getting any sort of access to uh, nude pictures or any sort of, you know, getting a, a, a penthouse or a Playboy uh, was not easy. Yeah, we had and, to resort to the Sears catalog. Yeah, looked exactly. Looked at the lingerie yeah, section. Yeah. And now we just assume that every 12-year-old has complete access to everything. Yeah, and, and you know, who knows what impact that may have had. Or, you know, and as with everything, when it's available, our goal, our task really is to figure out how we cope with it, how we raise children to be able to withstand whatever information they're going to get, whether it's political information or sexual information. Mm. Um, you know, it's like people say about keeping kids safe from drowning. Uh, do you put fences up around swimming pools or put swimming pool monitors in your pool or do you teach them to swim? Mm. And so it is with information. You need to be able to allow kids to be able to cope with whatever's out there. I think it's so hard because we, we talk about it with liberty and sex like that it, it's uh, you know it seems obvious to us and at least everyone in this room would be in the same camp when you talk about how easy it is now just to put, provide misinformation yeah i feel like there's there's a a groundswell of some kind of censorship or at least governing mechanism or something like that and that always ends up creeping towards government and so it's it's hard to argue one side without immediately thinking of the other the other examples on the other side when I say sides, I'm talking about my own personal sides, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Well, and misinformation is, is really uh, quite an interesting issue to try and deal with because obviously having lies, particularly lies told by policymakers, uh, is a bad thing. But who do you put in charge of being the arbiter of truth? Uh, it's hard to think of a solution that involving the government that wouldn't make things way worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, and all you have to do is think back about the... Uh, the numbers of times in which terrible policies were based on uh, governmental misinformation, whether it's uh, the war in Iraq or whether uh, it's the Gulf of Tonkin resolution that uh, led us uh, into our involvement in Vietnam. And yeah, there are a lot of people out there who are horrible liars, and many of them are facing consequences for that now. But those people who think that the solution is to have a ministry of truth or have the government to be able to decide which information is mis misinformation, which isn't, just seems completely unworkable and antithetical to what the only reason it's a bad idea is that you can't do it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, if it worked, it'd be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> if, if there were some, if if there were some way to ascertain what's true and yeah, yeah. And, and keep that 
uh, in our forefront, that would be wonderful. Right. But there's just, no way to do it. And, and just look at what came out with the pandemic. And you have a lot of people saying, well, you can't let people out there spreading misinformation about the pandemic because people could get uh, hurt. Uh, people could die. Well, yeah, that may be true. But just look at the shifts we have gone through for what was considered to be okay information to talk about and what uh, information wasn't. Did the virus come from the lab in Wuhan or not? At one point, we were told that uh, you can't say that because that's simply uh, propagating a lie. Uh, then later on, we find the government is going to investigate to find out whether or not that's true. So Yeah, well, you know, uh, our friend Nicholson Baker, you know, uh, he, uh, he talked to us very early on and just saying, we have to look at that if it came from the lab. We can't just say that's really, we don't even want to talk about absolutely. it. The lab is there. Yeah. You know, and they were doing, uh, they were doing research on seeing if things could become more dangerous yeah. for very good reasons. Sure. I mean, I think the people that talk about the weaponization of it are insane, hmm. but that doesn't mean that there weren't good people trying to say, what if this comes along, can we fight it? That's right. And uh, that that could have escaped. And similar arguments were made in 1918 with mm -hmm. uh, the Spanish flu. And interesting thing, the only reason the Spanish flu uh, was called the Spanish flu is because the Spanish media were, were allowed to talk about it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> it, 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 they, they pretty much think it was a um, Midwestern thing. Yes. All right, yeah. In Kansas. And, and very, very uh, tied in with uh, with uh, World War One. Yes. So. Well, we also had the problems with Lyme disease, which we, uh, we which Nicholson suggested might be a, a lab mistake as well. And we're not going back and looking at that. Yeah. I don't know why we wouldn't. Why would... Well, absolutely. You know, it's important to investigate all things out there and and try and come to some understanding of what the facts are hi this is pan in australia giving you a little uh, a little break to talk about hello fresh i gotta tell you hello fresh is really really good not only have we had it in our household with our family cooking it but also i have cooked it it's really really good fresh food hello fresh delivers fresh quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week so you can savor summer flavors right from home discover seasonal summer recipes like cucumber salad stuff pita pockets uh, i don't know if that's one thing cucumber salad yeah stuffed pita pockets chicken sausage stuffed peppers uh Tuscan spice shrimp and so much more. Godot uses this all the time. We use it pretty often. They offer vegetarian, all sorts of special diet stuff, and you can make it vegan really simple. Usually it just means leave off the sour cream. That's all it is. HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than dining at a restaurant. It's even cheaper than grocery shopping. Also, everything is pre-measured. There's no worry about that. So um, please check out Hello HelloFresh. You're going you're gonna to love it, love it, love it. I, uh, I've eaten, uh, I don't know, a zillion of their dishes and even cooked a couple of them, which is amazing, uh, amazing. Go to HelloFresh.com slash PSS16 and use the code PSS16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Got that? HelloFresh.com slash PSS16. One six and use the code PSS one six. It is very very good to try this out. HelloFresh.com slash PSS one six and use the code PSS one six. Did I say it's really really good to try this out? I don't know if that's good wording. Anyway, anyway, HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. It's really really good. Check it out. <laughs> 
Now, I don't know how you feel about big tech. I can't possibly know how you feel about it. But, you know, you make comments, you do all this, and they can uh, control a whole lot of stuff. And maybe you think they're doing a good job. Maybe you don't. I don't know and I don't care. I just think it's a lot better to be totally anonymous when you're online and just put them out of the equation. So if you want to put your name on something, put your name on it. If you don't, you don't. And big tech doesn't get to decide, okay? So how do you fight against big tech? Well, you know, uh, you can't buy up all the companies. You can't be like Elon Musk. You can't, you know, buy the companies you want, but you can use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN helps you Anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address, a unique identifier that every device has that allows big technology companies to follow you. This makes it a little bit harder for them to do that. And it's so easy to use the ExpressVPN app. Just tap, I just tap on my phone or computer and turn it on and then it's all, I use it on all my stuff. I use it on my iPad, I use it on my computer, I use it on my phone. I don't necessarily want big tech to know my IP address on everything I do. So if you don't agree with big tech knowing what your IP address is every single second, then take a stand. Visit expressvpn.com slash pep. Right now, it's wicked cheap. It's like, you know, it's very little money. I forgot, it says back here what it is. I think it's like $7 or something. It's really, really uh, not, let me see where it is. I was gonna look it up, but uh, anyway, it's really, really um, inexpensive. Less than $7 a month. Less than $7 a month, you can do the whole thing. Go to expressvpn.com slash pen. Right now, and you get three months of ExpressVPN free free for three months. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash P-E-N-N for three months free. ExpressVPN.com slash I got to talk to you a little bit about uh, Masterclass. Maybe Ready Rich will put a little thing on his own because he's doing these all the time. Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn how to do magic from Penn and Teller. How great is that? Our, I got to tell you, our Masterclass Magic course is really, really good. And not because of us, although Teller did a great job. But um, they also do beautiful. It's, it's like shooting a movie. They edit it beautifully. And the um, people that put it together, they learn it first. And then think about the best way to teach it. It's really, really good. And there's over 100 classes. So you pay one price. Say you want to see Penn and Teller. But then you get like the Steve Martin one on comedy. You get the, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Opie. Uh, Ron Howard one for directing. You get like basketball ones and astronaut ones, which I watch anyway, because you learn stuff from the people, even if you're not going into that field. The ones I watched, I absolutely loved. It's not necessary to sit down and consume a full class from start to finish. You can sharing insights from individual lessons. It's just, it's just fabulous. You can just find stuff and you'll be talking to your friends and sharing all the insights. A lot of people that didn't even learn magic watched ours and got a lot of stuff that they just thought about in their own fields. It's really, really good. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. You don't buy them individually. I mean, if you just want to buy the Penn and Teller masterclass, you get all the other hundred ones. They're really, really good. I mean, Neil Gaiman, Neil Gaiman teaching your writing. Uh, there's a lot of really good cooking ones. I know that. On a recent episode, we talked about real wasabi, so I decided to brush up on my authentic Japanese cooking with Niki Nakayama. 
who showed me how to make dashi, a type of stock which before I'd only learned how to do with pre-processed bottled ingredients. As a listener to Penn Sunday School, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash pen. Now, that's masterclass.com slash pen for 15% off Masterclass. Maybe Reddy Rich will tell you a little bit about what he's been doing lately, or maybe he won't. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Now we'll get back to the uh, to the show. I'm going to just, I, I was almost thinking about saving this for a, a whole second show. But we, <laughs> we, we got to talk about Louie Louie. Oh. <laughs> I just love the fact of all people, that, I mean, there's a whole book on Louie Louie, which of course you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, who wrote that? Um, the, the Dave Stardust. Marsh. Yeah, Dave Marsh. Uh, and I know you're, 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 you're very aware of that, but uh, your chapter on Louie Louie, is is amazing in the book amazing in the book uh so just just well, tell the story it was really fun to write well first of all um you started out saying that this is a history of free speech and it kind of is uh in that i talk about different episodes but they all revolve around the notion of what's going on in the mind of the censor mm -hmm. and i tell that through different episodes a lot of it s starts with comstock because he of course was a man who you know set the mold he created the concept of the professional censor but then I look at different episodes involving comic book censorship, music censorship, broadcast regulation, and the indecency panic, and so on, and then try and talk about what that means. And the music chapter just had to start with Alan Tipper Gore and the <laughs> Parents Music Resource Center and the Senate hearings on, um, you know, requiring or encouraging record labels to have warning labels from this hearing in 1985. Now, when I was writing that chapter, uh, I noted that every five minutes or so in this day-long hearing, people would say, this isn't about censorship. And by the way, we're not against rock and roll. It's nothing, uh, today is nothing like it was in the earlier, gentle years of rock and roll. And it was just so at odds with what I knew, and I know you know, the history of rock and roll to be. And so I originally was going to talk, tell the story of Louie Louie as sort of a two-paragraph aside, <laughs> uh, sort of a flashback in responding to these, these things saying, you know, well, we, we liked rock and roll then, but now uh, this is just horrible. And so I started writing this, and I knew when I was uh, going into it, and I had copies of the Freedom of Information Act file on the FBI investigation, I knew there had been this investigation, but as I started writing these two paragraphs, it turned into like 10 pages, sort of a 10-page flashback in the middle of the chapter on music censorship. And it's just the wildest story and funniest uh, in a tragic way of uh, what goes on with these things. Well, lay it on us. Tell us a <laughs> okay. I want to hear the Louis Louis story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it became one of the most iconic songs uh, in rock and roll history, partly because of this. There started to be rumors uh, that it was all filthy words, and mainly because people just couldn't understand um, what, uh, uh, what was being sung. People started writing letters. Uh, letters were sent to uh, Robert Kennedy, 
when he was attorney general. And you should also say that it, be, the reason was it was the guy standing on a chair. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> well, that's recording right. of Louie Louie was insane. Well, well, that's right. Well, the song was written by Richard Berry and then began to be recorded by various cover bands, or but not cover bands, but other bands. Paul Revere and the Raiders did a version, and then the Kingsmen did what then became the definitive version. And they did it in one take. Uh, the lead singer had just gotten braces like the week before. <laughs> and so he, he wasn't articulating all that well. They were in this little broom closet of, of a studio. And he's on his tippy toes singing up into the mic. Right. Uh, and so you got in that one take what we now know of as Louie Louie. Um, <laughs> and it's not even clear he knew what he was singing when he was singing it. Yes, he did. Uh, <laughs> yes, he did. But for the rest of us, well, you know, anybody's guess. The really, uh, well, I'll, I'll save the, this punchline for later, but to remind me to come back okay. to where the word fuck actually does appear in Louis Louis. But, uh, <laughs> um, no, he's singing up into this. Letters are being sent. A letter goes to the governor of Indiana who nudges the Indiana Broadcasters Association not to play Louis Louis anywhere. Did you start in the with state. children mishearing the lyrics or. Where is the actual story? No one, no one really knows. And I think uh, Dave Marsh probably has the best in his book um, on Louie Louie, the best discussion of it, where people think that it began with sort of like schoolyard versions and people would write out their versions of the lyrics and trade them. And, you know, back in the days when you couldn't get porn magazines uh, that you were talking about, people got wind of this notion that there's this filthy song out there being played on the America's airwaves. And so... Governor Welch uh, essentially informally bans Louie Louie. Uh, the federal government is uh, peppered with, with letters. And so the FBI launches an investigation that goes on <laughs> for two and a half years. <laughs> there were six FBI field officers doing their investigation of Louie Louie. They would bring in... Six field officers? Six. <laughs> what, what, are, what do they think they're investigating? Like they're looking, we, they're if, looking for dirty words. They're and if looking, they find dirty words, what law is that violating? At the time, in the early 60s, probably obscenity law, mm -hmm. uh, probably an early version of FCC and decency law. And, but only when it's played on the radio. Well, right? for FCC, yes. Right. But for well, everything else, if it's, a, if, if it's obscenity, then they could bring in a, a prosecution well, under... The, okay, you gotta, you got to <laughs> strip this down really clearly to us. If... A child with braces stands on his toes. Let's say he the words to Louis Louis, just for the sake of argument, which lawyers like to do. Let's say the words are "fuck cunt motherfucker" over and over again. Okay. Okay. That's those are what the words are to Louis Louis. That's all there are. Yeah. Now a child with braces stands on his toe in the closet and says those words, and nobody hears them. <laughs> There is no law broken, correct? And Heller Keller would still... <laughs> Big noise when she fell over in the woods. That's right. Uh, okay. But, but uh, and then if someone does listen, still no law broken, right? That's a law school exam question. Well, thank uh, you. That's what I'm asking. Yeah. You went through law school. No one else in the room did. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> There would be arguments on both sides, <laughs> but uh, the I think what they would have to do is ask what people heard 
uh, or if if they were actually if they were to bring a prosecution, they would go to the lyric sheet. They would get all of the evidence together, of regardless of how it sounded, what was. But I mean, this is before it's recorded. I'm talking about not being recorded. If he's just, we're, we're stripping it down to basics. If he says it alone, no one knows about it. Tree falls in the forest on Helen Keller. She right. screams, no one hears her. <laughs> right. Okay. Now, the next step is you say that to one other person. You're allowed to do that under 60s law? Uh, you could be prosecuted for it. For just saying it to one other person? Yeah. Then one other person could testify. That person said, I didn't want to hear it. Yeah. I mean, it's... There aren't really cases that talk about that sort of one-on-one communication, so it's a little hard to say. But but if you said a publicly in charge admission, it's a whole other thing. And if you record it, it's a whole other thing. But under the jurisdiction of the FBI, where are they involved in that? Because the song was released in interstate commerce, uh-huh. uh, right? Uh, it also was on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have all of those factors that would lead to some kind of investigation, but uh, they responded and uh, uh, conducted this investigation. Now, here's the funny part. They were a year into the investigation, six field officers listening to various recordings at various speeds, uh, <laughs> trying to figure out what the words were. And it's about a year later, they figure out, why don't we go to the copyright office? And so... <laughs> And read the lyrics and see if this song is in any way obscene. So they did that. In the, in the movie, that's the big breakthrough moment. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They get the lyrics and they How go. How could it take them a year to think of that? How could it possibly take you, them a year to think of that? You got me. <laughs> but you would think that would end it, right? That's in any rational world, that, that, that would be the end of the story. It's like, oh. Never mind. But that's not what happened. They, they uh, you know, saw the lyrics and continued investigating for another year and a half <laughs> until finally. Now, and when you read the lyrics right. of the copyright office, they kind of map onto the garbled. They kind of do. Kind of map. But I, one of the things I do in the book is I set out the schoolyard version mm-hmm. that the FBI had in their files and map that up against the actual lyrics. And there's really not a lot of comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those parts that were considered to be horribly offensive just don't appear in the actual lyrics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, they kept looking for somewhere, the, the schoolyard but version. But it's even weirder than that, because if I say fuck, and you just pull that out, and you have to decide whether I said fuck or not, what do they think the damage is? Oh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that you can't understand it right. seems like an entire defense. You would think. With nothing else. You would think. You know, you just say, well, what damage did I do? You don't know what the fuck I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. Well, some of the, the uh, parent activists who were writing to J. Edgar Hoover about this would say they had recorded a... Um, a version off of television and found nothing objectionable about it, which must mean that the artists were creating this audio illusion so that people could hear uh, what they intended as dirty lyrics. And what is the supposed motive of the Kingsman idiots? What is their supposed motive? Corruption of youth. Corruption of youth. And that is their goal. 
Well, that's the goal of all rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> I remember with the Ju- the Judas Priest case when yeah. they did the backward masking thing, exactly. and one of the one of the guys got on the stand or something and said, "If we could put backward masking in to make people do things, it would be buy more of our records. <laughs> <laughs> it would not be for the people who are buying our records to kill themselves because that's fewer customers. <laughs> so it's it's also it's also the motive so uh so the fbi is spending hundreds of dollars on this hundreds at least yes <laughs> yes hundreds of dollars listening to this oh, and what's great about it j edgar hoover gets these letters from kooks out there and he sends them nice um responses saying we're looking into it and by the way here are a couple of anti-porn pamphlets that the fbi has uh but then he would send his agents to do investigations on those groups to see if they were doing anything on un- untoward as well <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a great system. <laughs> so now that's entrapment, isn't it? Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I always, and you can't ever answer this. You can't ever answer this, but it makes me crazy. The FBI guy who's listening to Louie Louie all day with headphones right. at different speeds and going to the copyright office, he goes home for dinner. Maybe he goes out with his friends to play poker or let's say that that's illegal so he's going to play you know gin rummy and they say what did you do today <laughs> doesn't he say this is fucking crazy you and i would I, yeah yeah but i mean doesn't anybody say, i mean does i mean the, the opposite is way worse you're like okay today i think i heard it yeah once <laughs> today i was in louis louis all day yeah. i know i heard it once you know, I mean, where it, are the believers? It, it's a job, you know, uh, <laughs> right? Go in. What If you had a choice, go in, listen to Louie Louie all day, or go out there and chase bad guys. <laughs> what yeah. what, what yeah. would you choose? Because the record's not going to shoot at you. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Smartest guy in the room is like, I need to open a field office. <laughs> <laughs> right now. <laughs> so were the Kingsmen? Uh, what what was the what was the Kingsman position on this? Well, they actually their label put out a, a standing uh, reward offer of I forget it was two thousand dollars, ten thousand something uh, for anyone who could show them and find proof that there was anything obscene in Louis Louis, and no one ever ever responded to that. Mm-hmm. They loved it because they <laughs> you know it, it sent sales of the record from. <laughs> basically zero right. to the FBI alone <laughs> that's right, right. ordering 2,000 a week <laughs> which is 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 something that I call in the book the Comstock effect because this was true even back then when he was going after various uh, plays or books or whatever uh, it made them very popular as it's you know the band in Boston phenomenon things we've seen again and again but it was certainly true when with the case of Louis Louis that that the FBI investigation and the supposedly forbidden lyrics were part of what made it so popular. And the fact that it's wicked easy to play. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but the kicker for all of this is that the word fuck does appear uh, in about uh, oh, 57 seconds into the song. And it's indistinct and in the background because I say they did this in one take. And during the course of it, the drummer dropped a stick and he just goes, fuck. And. Uh, <laughs> But it's indistinct and in the background, it's not part of the lyrics. So no one was looking for it. But even today, if you listen for it, you can hear it. So you could you could have made the two grand. 
<laughs> yeah, could have. <laughs> <laughs> now all we need is our time machine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, well, um, on Hey Jude, you can hear Paul McCartney say, I fucked up. <laughs> I didn't know. Oh, yeah, it's very, very clear. I had always thought it was Ringo. <laughs> it's going into the chorus. Paul is uh, is is right before they go na 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 na. Right before that, Paul is going uh, on the piano, and he hits the wrong chord, <laughs> and he yells, "I fucked up," and it's crystal clear. And the um, and the uh, rest of the band decides it's not reason to stop, <laughs> and they finish the whole take. And Paul says, I, I hit the wrong notes there. We're not going to use it. And they argued and thought it was the best performance overall. And then they were going to pull down Paul's mic when he says, I fuck up, which they could have easily done mm -hmm. and just didn't bother doing it. <laughs> so you could hear it very clearly. Paul says, I fucked up. And he's really, um, he is, what he's doing is he's calling off the take. He's saying, yeah. we're done. Yeah. And everybody just ignores him. <laughs> and, and, and goes on. I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I. Uh, uh, but then, how do we get from? And I never understood this. How do we get from Louie Louie to Eminem in the in the top forty? Well, that was a cultural shift that happened beginning in the sixties, actually beginning in the fifties, but really taking root in the sixties, and then. The 70s were sort of the establishment sort of swallowing the 60s and, and changing uh, mm -hmm. as a result of it. And legal changes. Uh, you know, the, the fact is the law was evolving along with what they call in my biz contemporary community standards. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was this evolution of, and what I talk about in the book is not just the law of free speech, because I don't, what I've written is not a law book as much as a book about the culture and how that has interacted <laughs> with the law. But there's also the culture of free expression. And one of the things that changed and actually was a backlash against things like Comstock was that people didn't like being told what to think or what to say. And we developed this strong culture of free expression, which rejects censorship as a solution. Uh, and through the 20th century, the law evolved so that the two worked together. Mm -hmm. So you can now, what are the... Well, radio doesn't matter anymore, but what are the limitations on radio now? Well, you still have the, um, the FCC regulation, radio stations which is still licensed by the FCC as are television stations. Uh, they are subject to 18 U.S.C. 1464, is, which is in the criminal code. It is a section of the criminal code that makes uh, broadcasting obscene, indecent, or profane language a, a crime. Uh, it is enforced through the FCC largely through civil sanctions, but it also carries, a, as I mentioned, jail sentences. Um, and the FCC has struggled to try and understand and apply that law um, basically forever. And it was in the 70s that, that what became the current incarnation of that standard came about through the George Carlin Seven Dirty Words. Mm -hmm. um, and that was basically what was applied to broadcast and radio stations, still applied, but based on different cases that have happened uh, with different levels of enthusiasm. By which, the uh, which, which George never really backed at all, did he? Well, he just kind of ignored it. I'm not sure what you mean. Well, I mean, uh, he wasn't part of any of those 
trials, right, of the seven dirty words. No, no, it was a sanction against uh, Pacifica right, Radio right. in New York. He was, they had simply played the monologue Filthy Words right. as part of a larger show on how language is used mm -hmm. and so on. And uh, Carlin had done this great routine called The Seven Words You Can right. Never Say on Radio or Television. Which he just made up. Which he just made up, yeah, yeah. And in it, it coincided with the FCC trying to decide what they should have for a standard for indecency. Indecency is supposed to mean something different from obscenity, obscenity being hardcore porn, essentially. And indecency is what? Obscenity light? Uh, no one really knew. The FCC didn't have a standard. And so in the mid-1970s, they embarked on trying to find a way to define what this concept means. How do we enforce this law for radio and television? And in the course of it, Pacifica did this show. Someone sent a complaint. Actually, a complaint is sent in by the head of morality and media, uh, in some, one of the decency groups in New York. Um, one complaint in all of New York over this, this broadcast. <laughs> Yeah. And, <laughs> and so the FCC decides to take this on as their test case, you know, that they will use this to try and figure out this standard. So George Carlin, in effect, became the only stand-up comic in history to devise a legal standard, mm -hmm. and it became the seven dirty words. The FCC was astonished to win the case. They, they really thought they would lose, and they did lose originally in the Court of Appeals. And the federal government, the Solicitor General's office, declined to defend the FCC in the Supreme Court when the, um, when the case went up because they thought it was a sure loser. And so you had a staff attorney from the FCC go to argue in the Supreme Court to defend this standard. The FCC fully expected to lose it. And lo and behold, they won by a narrow, by a narrow margin. And the FCC immediately being so amazed that they had won quickly essentially announced that they would enforce the law against nothing but the seven Carlin words. And that was the effective law for the next nine years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Actually, completely written, just pulled out of his ass. Uh, well, that's right. And it's great. I mean, I mean just, it's just for the sound of it is what he really did. Well, oh, that's the thing. I mean, you go through the list. Shit, piss, fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. Mm -hmm. And you got to ask yourself, why is tits on the list? Yeah. Right. Why in the world? Right. Actually, Carlin even goes into that. Right. His mom exactly. talks yeah. about that. Sounds, saying, like a, sounds like a name of a friend. Sounds, sounds, sounds like, like the same as of a snack, like yeah. tater tits. Right? Yeah. And so, but the reason is because it was a one-syllable punctuation sure, of course. at the end of the list. And it's funny. Yeah, and, but, but Carlin uh, was just amazed by this whole thing. Yeah. 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 C could, not, could not understand. Of course, Carlin had gone through... Um, and when he was making making the, that then abrupt change he made from uh, FM and AM, uh, right there from being uh, you know a, a thin tie, uh, right Ed Sullivan guy, yeah, to uh, to who he who he became. That's right, and uh, that was all kind of part of it to him. Yeah, it was, and <laughs> um, it's he was quickly put in the same ranks as Lenny Bruce, where at the uh, um, Wisconsin State Fair. In 71, I think, uh, he was arrested for disorderly conduct for uh, doing some of his routines on stage. Uh, the charges were, were ultimately dropped, but uh, actually it was, it harkened back to when he was arrested with Lenny with Bruce. With Lenny Bruce, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, I, uh, I, I think we've talked about this. I, I found uh, when um, 
when uh, Hal Hal Wilner, who you know, who died from COVID, yeah, um, but you know, the great producer Hal Wilner had all of Lenny Bruce's tapes, all of them, and I found the hunk on there where Lenny Bruce talks about this stupid fucking kid yeah. who jumps into the paddy wagon with him, yeah. which is a story that Carlin always told. I uh, found the hunk oh, that's and crazy. was going to send it to Carlin and was right when Carlin died. Uh, so I never got to, uh, never got to get well, that. And, and recently, you know, I had not ever- well, I should explain that. What happened was when Lenny, when Lenny Bruce was arrested once in New York- in, in Chicago. In Chicago. Oh, was it Chicago? Yeah, the Gate of Horn. Oh, it, 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 that's where George Carlin was? Yeah. George Carlin jumped in the paddy wagon with him. Essentially. Well, actually, he was put in the paddy wagon by the cops. Because it, he was underage. And no, because no. because he refused to show ID. Uh -huh. And Yeah. And so uh -huh. this was, you know, one of the famous busts of, of George Carlin, where, I mean, I'm sorry, Lenny Bruce. Uh, Lenny Bruce, where he does his show. The cops are standing in the back of the room. They haul him off stage, put him in the paddy wagon. Uh, then they go around through the audience collecting IDs and calling for people to show their IDs. And uh, George Carlin fuses. And so they haul him out and put him in the paddy wagon with, uh, with Lenny Bruce. And Lenny says, what are you doing here? He said, I didn't show him my ID. I don't believe in ID. <laughs> Lenny looks at him and just says, you schmuck. <laughs> but I had never seen, I had seen this photo of, Carlin, uh, of, of Lenny Bruce being taken to the paddy wagon a million times. And it wasn't until I recently saw the show, I'm Not a Comedian, I'm Lenny Bruce, mm -hmm. the guy who's doing this one-man show for Lenny Bruce showed me the photo. And you can see just over Lenny Bruce's shoulder uh, as he's being hauled to the paddy wagon, there's George Carlin. Whoa! That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of like watching the Zapruder film. And <laughs> someone on George the grassy Carlin knoll. on the grassy knoll. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so in in the in the, in the book covering covering all this, I, I, where do, where does uh, two live crew fit in this whole thing? Yeah, I talk about that in the, yeah, in the chapter on music censorship, and you know it it shows um, a couple of things. One is you had this circus of the Parents Music Resource Center holding these hearings and the political impact of that, but it was followed by hearings on rap music. Uh, which didn't get the same kind of play, didn't have the same kind of star power. You didn't have um, Frank Zappa and Dee Snyder, that, you know, the likes of them at, at the uh, rap hearings. Uh, and, and the hearings on rap music were actually, for a Washington hearing, uh, less of a, a show trial. And there was some actual um, thought going into it. But meanwhile, there was this national panic over rap music, and that resulted in the prosecution of Two Live Crew, uh, down in Florida, there were lots of machinations that led to uh, trying to make an example of them. And uh, so they ultimately were, were prosecuted. And this is the part of the chapter that talks less about the politics and more about the law as it was developing at the time. Um, because, uh, you know, there you have two life crew being prosecuted, not for FCC and decency standards, but for obscenity, uh, which is just insane. Um, it was the live show. They were. Risking. It was. It was a live show, uh, and um, it was at a bar, so you don't have underage people there, right? Um, or I think it was at a bar. I might be wrong, but nonetheless, uh, they were prosecuted for obscenity. Uh, the district court said, "Yeah, um, there's a lot of talk about the First Amendment here, but this music appeals more to the loins than to the intellect," and so he was going to let the obscenity charges go forward. 
uh, it goes to the Court of Appeals, the, uh, the 11th Circuit says, no, <laughs> this, this isn't obscene. And so the momentum for trying to create a criminal law around the likes of Two Live Crew immediately collapsed. And uh, the rest of First Amendment law by then had caught up. Well, they did a show right after that where uh, other performers... Oh, Too Much Joy. Too Much Joy and yeah. a few others went on and yeah. did that and were arrested. Yeah. You know, they actually spent the night in jail. And if you talk to uh, Too Much Joy, they say it was an amazing feeling to be in jail overnight for songs for what i said on stage yeah they just they said it's very different to talk about that theoretically than to sit in a jail cell and their drummer uh, is a new york city police officer so it's very complicated for him yeah uh and he actually uh it was, it was horrible for him because he didn't say anything on stage and uh -huh. he was also had the brotherhood of police and if you're arrested and you're a police officer it's really really um messy yeah. So he had to deal with, which the, the, the band was very, I mean, nobody was against him on this. I mean, that was the thing they talk about is the police were so apologetic. <laughs> and the police had, you know, a New York City police officer uh, who was drumming that they were supposed to be arresting yeah. and going, well, you didn't say anything on stage. So you just go and him going, well, I'm with my band and I'm going, you don't want to, I, 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 yeah. and it sounds like the whole evening was, I, I, <laughs> I, I we are, it's, uh, yeah. it's, uh. well, as I recall, they dropped the charges right after, right afterwards. Yeah. 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 But uh, I believe, and I may, I may have misremembered the story, but I believe the drummer just kind of went, uh, and the, the, the police officers really stopped them. Mm. They said, this is a complete clusterfuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be dropped. It's going to be awful. And there's no reason why you should have to go back and explain how you were arrested in Florida to people that may not understand the situation. So, right. so run away. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, just incredible. I, I remember uh, uh, when that happened. I mean, I was, I was talking to you at that time, too, just going... Yeah. That, uh, that, how is uh, that? This is not. We this battle was fought years ago. Right. Well, we had the same conversation about the aristocrats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which uh, that was AMC, not play. Which incidentally, um, when I wrote the um, the uh, the edit, the uh, op ed for the New York Times about Saget. Yeah. I talked about the aristocrats. I had a line <clears throat> in there that said, "I believe it was Saget's." Uh, uh, Saget's uh, performance that got us not allowed in the AMC theater chain. <laughs> and the fact checkers from the New York Times cut that line huh. and they said, we called AMC and they said it was nothing to do with the movie. They just didn't think it would have a big enough audience. <laughs> and I said, well, you, you know that's not true. <laughs> and the New York Times said we can only go with what their statement is. <laughs> Our fact checkers have said so. AMC did not refuse to play the Aristocrats because of uh, the content. They just didn't think it would go. That's the running theme in the book. Nobody wants to be identified as no. a censor. Well, not anymore. Though. I'm not anymore. Not anymore. Not not after Comstock. Yeah. And it was <laughs> after the culture changed. We had a culture of free expression. And after the law began to back that up. Uh, then it became a bad thing. Yeah. And that's, uh, 
That's where it should be. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But, yeah, so they they're always trying to uh, always trying to work around that. But yeah, I was really surprised. You know, AMC. And, you know, and and uh, when the AMC, when AMC said when we said they had not allowed they were playing our movie and the whole thing was happening in real time, Prevenz and I were saying that. And they came out and said, well, we just didn't think it would sell that well. That's why we didn't do it and did that whole thing. Prevenz and I did several interviews where we said, um, we're not saying this. It didn't happen. But the popcorn at AMC, <laughs> we've heard is poison. But it isn't. It isn't. And that's not what we're saying. But we've heard it's poison. I mean, deadly poison. People are getting really sick from AMC popcorn. But that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were saying that in every interview, which was really making us laugh a lot, um, because that's what they were saying. You know, yeah, they were doing the yeah, same thing. Yeah. We're not playing this, but we not not for that reason, right, not for right, any of that. Right. But we have to get into so much more of uh, the mind of the censor and the eye of the beholder, the First Amendment and the censor's dilemma by Robert Corn Revere. It is an amazing book that we're going to talk about a lot more. But for right now, that was Penn Sunday School. Cha cha cha. You become naked. <laughs> yeah, what I really want to get uh, get into is where the where the battle is now. Oh, where where we yeah. are now after all of this. Yeah. Now that we've decided it's bad to be a censor. How we're still censoring. Yeah. Yeah. Side of Louie Louie, you are my sunshine. Is that true? Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so they were covering for something. <laughs> you know, we love you. Can I bring a thank there, Matt Donnelly? Oh, yeah. You're about to hear some names of some awesome people who back us at patreon.com slash pen. Talking about Jeff Bacher, Eric going lickety splickety to his Toyota 09 Dobell, Michael Torbay, Leah B. Jacob McCulley, Kelsey Johnson, Nicole Martin, Crazy Cat Lady Scoop, Nick Hemsing, Music Man, Jamie Thrasher, Rachel Hawkins, Jake Schneider, Pete Hoke, Kelly McCauley, Jeremy Davidson, and Robin Garnett. Thanks so much. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.